Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we begin, a quick note. This episode was written and recorded in late 2023. It also includes an extended version. The extended version of this episode is available on my Patreon. It includes extra information related to this tomb and the discovery. It's nothing essential, you can still understand the full story without it, but for those who are interested in the extra details and nitty-gritty, the extended version goes much deeper into the archaeological discussions and some of the questions surrounding this monument. Also, the Patreon episode includes a PDF booklet, with photographs of many of the treasures and extensive notes and references related to this subject. So this episode is the shorter version, but it still gives the full and complete story. If you are interested in some extra, extended material, you can find that on my Patreon. Links in the episode description. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode. This is The Treasures of Queen Hetep Heres, a curious discovery that occurred in 1925 at the Great Necropolis of Giza. The tomb of Hetep Heres, just east of the Great Pyramid, is a curious find, one that still presents many questions for archaeologists today. In this episode, we explore a fascinating discovery, an unusual excavation, and an enduring question of ancient Egyptian history. Come, let us visit the tomb of Queen Hetep Heres. Our story begins in 1925. Cairo, the capital of Egypt, was bustling. Tourism was on the rise, thanks to the discovery of King Tutankhamun and his undisturbed tomb in 1922. Wealthy travellers were flocking to Egypt from all over the world, and they went to visit the southern city, Luxor, to see the treasures of Tutankhamun as they emerged from his sepulchre. Egyptologists like Howard Carter had become household names, and the field, overall, was booming. There had been controversies, and we'll come back to those later as they are relevant, but overall, Egyptology and archaeology was enjoying more attention and renown than ever before. It was a good time to dig. As the tourists came to Cairo, many of them stopped to view the great monuments of the city. Naturally, most of those groups made the pilgrimage to Giza. Dominating Cairo's western horizon, the Giza Plateau was an easy draw. Its three enormous pyramids, commissioned by the kings Khufu, Khafra, and Menkaura, respectively, lined the horizon. And around those pyramids, smaller structures, like the pyramids of queens and mastabas for royal officials, transformed the Giza Plateau into a vast cemetery. A true necropolis, a city of the dead. 
Compared to the Valley of the Kings, where unbelievable treasures were still emerging, Giza was a bit more reticent. Archaeologists had done important work over the past few decades, but the actual finds were largely pieces of art, like beautiful statues, or more academic information. Scholars were rapidly expanding their knowledge of Giza and its necropolis, of Old Kingdom funerary architecture, and of the social and labour organisation of the pyramid builders. Basically, Egyptologists and academics were having a field day, but for the tourists, there was a distinct lack of shiny, golden treasures. Little did they know, but as those tour groups wandered around the Great Pyramid, especially its eastern face, their footsteps passed over the top of wonderful things. Just next to the Khufu pyramids, great boat pits lay concealed beneath sand and stone, and those enormous boats would not emerge until the 1950s. And just east of the Great Pyramid, amid a tumble of smaller monuments, there were still magnificent treasures to find. This is where our story begins. On February the 9th, 1925, a Monday, an archaeological team was at work on the Giza Plateau. They were clearing sand and rubble, and documenting the monuments east of the Great Pyramid. Here, there was still much work to be done. The Eastern Cemetery, quote-unquote, is dominated by smaller pyramids, the Queen's Pyramids of Khufu, mastabas for royal officials and priests from the 4th, 5th, and 6th dynasties, and the enormous temple and causeway of Khufu himself. The Eastern Cemetery is a busy area, even now. Archaeologists continue to work in this region, and they still make periodic discoveries. In 1925, it was particularly active, thanks to an ongoing excavation, funded by Harvard University and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. The excavation was officially led by a professor named George Andrew Reisner. He was not present at the time, being in America on a visit, but his assistants and the excavation team were still working. And amidst this hustle and bustle, a young man was taking photographs. A man named Mohammed Ian Ibrahim, or Mohammed Ani in some reports, was the official expedition photographer for this excavation. Ibrahim had already documented many significant discoveries, and you might have seen his photos without realising it. He was a skilled photographer, with a knack for capturing the difficulties of excavation, and the labour involved in archaeology. He was also skilled at conveying the larger contents of archaeological finds. With a tripod and a careful eye, Mohammedani Ibrahim is one of the forgotten heroes of early 20th century archaeology. His photos are informative and beautiful. The expedition was lucky to have him. Anyway, on Monday the 9th of February, Ibrahim was working at Giza, just east of the Great Pyramid. He was setting up his tripod, preparing to photograph a street, quote-unquote, not far from the ruins of Khufu's temple and causeway. As he unloaded his tripod and began setting it up, something unexpected happened. One of the legs of the tripod started to sink, pressing down into the ground. That was strange. 
The Giza Plateau is dominated by limestone, which, while porous, is relatively stable. A tripod shouldn't be sinking that easily. Apparently, something was there. Ibrahim alerted the excavation leader, a man named Alan Rowe. They quickly cleared the sand away from the surface, and identified a patch of plaster and stone. It seemed that there was a monument, possibly a burial shaft, located in this region. Again, that was strange. At Giza, most tombs or burials have a superstructure, a monument on top of them. This is either a pyramid or a mastaba, a mud-brick structure that lays on top of the tomb itself. Here, there was something like a hole in the ground, but it was clearly closed with slabs of stone and a layer of plaster. It was unexpected, and the team were not quite sure what to make of it. For the next couple of weeks, nothing happened. The excavation was busy with other areas and projects. But then, on Thursday the 19th of February, the archaeologists were free to turn their attention to Ibrahim's patch of plaster. Over the next couple of weeks, the archaeological team, including Egyptian labourers, cleared sand, rubble and debris. They were meticulous. They stopped whenever they found an object or small item. And they carefully documented those items, recording their position and location. Doing this, they slowly built a profile of the excavation scene. This kind of methodical, meticulous record-keeping was slow, but important. And it was part of the new scientific archaeology that was taking shape in the early 20th century. Compared to older generations, these new excavators were far more careful and attentive, recording everything they saw, in case it proved important later. It is a method still used today, and it took shape in this era. From February 19th to March the 7th, the team cleared the sand and rubble. As they dug, they started to uncover a curious monument. First, there was a staircase cut directly into the Giza Plateau. It headed south, and the steps descended for about three and a half metres, or 11 feet. They had been covered over with stones, but as the team removed them, they found this passage going down. Then, the staircase suddenly switched to a short tunnel. The tunnel went ahead for another metre, or three feet, before once again changing shape. Now, at the end of the staircase and tunnel, the monument switched to a pit. A rectangular shaft, about 2.3 metres wide, suddenly opened up before them. The archaeologists duly photographed, recorded it, and then began digging down. The shaft proceeded in a roughly straight line below the surface of Giza. It was not a perfect shaft, the walls were roughly cut, bending and expanding as they went deeper into the rock. The shaft itself was full of sand, loose rubble, and large chunks of stone. Some of those stones were quite large, almost blocks or miniature boulders. And amid the debris, small items occasionally came to light. The excavators found fragments of pottery, broken bits of stone from other monuments, and all kinds of miscellaneous detritus. Most notably, that pottery that was coming up was distinctly Old Kingdom in style. The design and manufacture corresponded with pottery of the 4th dynasty. That was helpful giving the excavators a rough starting date for the monument. The shaft, wherever it led, 
might be Old Kingdom. Perhaps it would even be contemporary with the Great Pyramid itself. Meter by meter, the team cleared the rubble and documented it. At first, the monument did not seem that promising. For one thing, it didn't look like a tomb, or at least not an Old Kingdom tomb. As I said, burials at Giza tend to have monuments on top of them, structures like a pyramid or a mastaba. The ones that don't are usually test pits, abandoned monuments that were never completed, or structures of much later periods. So the basic design was not promising. Furthermore, the architecture itself was kind of rough. The shaft was small, the stone carving was haphazard, clearly unfinished. It looked like a rush job, or again, something that was started but then abandoned. So at first glance, the stairs and the shaft, while interesting, did not exactly scream major discovery or even treasures ahead. Nevertheless, the excavators were cautiously excited. Although this monument was small and out of sorts with other structures at Giza, it did have one promising feature. As they dug, it became clear that the rubble and detritus filling the shaft was relatively undisturbed. That might sound oxymoronic. How can rubble be undisturbed? Isn't it kind of disturbed by nature? Well, yes and no. The stone and debris were jumbled about. But there were also layers of sand. Periodically in the shaft, the diggers found clean sand that had no detritus or objects within it. Clean sand is a wonderful find in any excavation. It marks a layer where nothing has disturbed the ground since the original construction. And below these chunks of stone and bits of pottery, the archaeologists were finding layers of clean sand. So, the monument seemed to be intact, undisturbed since its original construction. With that in mind, the possibilities began to multiply. The dig continued, meter by meter, day by day. It was laborious, sweaty work, even in the Egyptian winter. And the shaft went down and down and down. About seven and a half meters below the surface, 24 feet, something interesting appeared. The archaeologists found a small niche, a hollow cut into the side of the shaft. The niche contained two wine jars and a set of bones. The bones came from an animal, a bull to be precise, and they included the bull's skull and assorted bits. These items were carefully placed, they were not debris or rubbish, and the bones and wine appeared to be a meal. That was an interesting find. The ancient Egyptians tended to leave food and drink carefully arranged in or near to tombs, they seem to be the remains of offerings, or maybe banquets, held during the funeral, items that could commemorate and nourish the soul of the deceased. The presence of these wine jars and the bull, an expensive animal, suggested that the find was, indeed, a tomb of some sort. Again, that was a little bit unexpected. So far, the objects found indicated an Old Kingdom date, roughly 4th Dynasty, but as I said, most of the Old Kingdom tombs at Giza are part of mastabas or pyramids, so a shaft cut into the rock seemed out of sync with the other monuments in the region. 
With that in mind, the team was cautious. The find was increasingly looking like a burial of some sort, but they were going to have to wait and see. As it turned out, the team was right to be cautious. For more than three weeks, the team cleared and documented the shaft. The hole, or square pit, went down and down and down into the plateau. Finally, though, the team approached the end of their dig. Some 25 metres below the surface, about 82 feet down, the team started to encounter stone blocks. These were not the random bits and rubble they'd encountered so far. These blocks were neatly arranged in order. Someone had laid them carefully, filling the passage with a solid blocking of stone. That was exciting. It suggested that whatever lay at the bottom was important enough to seal away and protect. Now, more than ever, a tomb seemed likely, and apparently this tomb was undisturbed. At this point, the excitement was building. A tomb of the 4th dynasty right next to the Great Pyramid? That seemed to promise all kinds of possibilities. Were the team about to uncover another Tutankhamun? The archaeologists removed the stones, documenting them as they went. Now, things were accelerating. As they withdrew each block, the edges of a chamber started to appear. This was along the south wall of the shaft. The chamber was blocked with stones, but the outline was unmistakable. The team had reached the bottom of the shaft, and they had found a room. And once again, it seemed undisturbed. The chamber was closed with a layer of blocks and masonry, and before the team could open that chamber, they had to finish clearing the shaft. This part was important. Although they may have been desperate to get into the chamber, they had to do their job properly. It's good that they did, for amid the blocks and rubble, the team found seals. Small lumps of clay stamped with hieroglyphs, which the ancients used to seal boxes and jars, and to record royal activity. Clay or mud seals are a great find for historians. They often reference kings, royal officials, or government departments. Whenever an ancient bureaucrat or representative needed to mark their authority, a mud seal was a good tool. The team found some of these at the bottom of the shaft. The seals were fragmentary and broken, but they still contained legible hieroglyphs, and on some of them, the archaeologists could identify a name. The seals referenced the king Horus Medjedu. This is Khufu, the second ruler of the fourth dynasty, and the man who commissioned the Great Pyramid. Along with some other hieroglyphs referencing government departments, the seals painted a clear picture. The shaft, closed and buried, seemed to be from the reign of Khufu. So... It was contemporary with the Great Pyramid itself. At last, the shaft was clear. The chamber was ready to be opened. The day had arrived. On March the 8th, a Sunday, a small group gathered at the shaft. In charge was Alan Rowe, who was Dr. Reisner's assistant. There was also Thomas Greenlees, a South African-British archaeologist, who was keeping a diary of the whole project. There were also Egyptian workers, whose names are not recorded, and possibly Muhammad Ani Ibrahim as the photographer, but I couldn't find a specific mention of him. The point is, the team would have been small, 
The shaft was cramped, and no one knew exactly what they had found. To avoid disappointment, the first opening was quiet. The team removed a block from the doorway that sealed the chamber, and Alan Rowe stepped forward with a flashlight. He poked it through the hole, and shone light into the ancient darkness. What did he see? Rowe's light pierced the chamber, and immediately it reflected off gold. Bits of metal all about lay within the hall. The metal was fragmentary, piled atop different items. But it was abundant, and there seemed to be a variety of it. In one section, there were what appeared to be golden rods. In another, scraps of gold that looked like a box. Another pile seemed, maybe, to be the outline of furniture. Equally important, there was the unmistakable outline of a stone sarcophagus. Just near to the doorway, shining dully in the torchlight, there was an alabaster or travertine casket. Now it was definitive. Alan Rowe and the expedition team had uncovered a tomb. A wealthy tomb. Like Howard Carter before him, Alan Rowe was having a moment of wonderful things. The excitement must have been overwhelming, but surprisingly, the archaeologists did not continue. Officially, this excavation project was under the authority of Dr. George Reisner, and by the protocols of the time, the archaeologists needed to wait for him before they would open the monument and examine it. Unfortunately, Reisner was still in America, and it would take some time before he could return to Egypt. So, a few days after the initial opening, the chamber was resealed, pending Reisner's return. Surprisingly, we now have to wait an entire year. The next phase of work did not begin until January 1926. That was, apparently, the point at which Reisner was able to return to Egypt and take official charge of the excavation. I can only imagine how frustrating that must have been for Alan Rowe or Greenlees or the Egyptian workers who had laboured so hard in February and March of 1925. They had done all that work, got right to the door of the chamber, but now they had to wait. The impatience must have been incredible. Nevertheless, the team did their job, they resealed the chamber, filled the shaft with rubble and sand once more, and buried the site until they were able to return. On January 21st, 1926, Reisner was at Giza. He was assisted by a notable Egyptologist named Dowes Dunham, and now they, together with their assistants and the Egyptian workers, formally began to clear the tomb that had been discovered. Remarkably, this clearance was going to take a long time, almost 12 full months. The chamber that they had opened was a haphazard affair. The ancient objects, mostly made of wood and covered with gold, had disintegrated, leaving just the metal behind. So the objects were in a terribly fragile condition, and they would need careful treatment and conservation as they were removed from the chamber. Also, the assemblage itself was in a great confusion, more on that later, and that was going to complicate the excavation of the hall. In earlier generations, a find like this might have been cleared quite quickly, within a matter of weeks or even days. But as I mentioned earlier, Reisner and his team 
were part of a new generation of archaeologists that were far more concerned with conservation and careful record-keeping when they were doing their work. That care and attention, combined with the terribly disintegrated state of the objects, meant that clearing this chamber was going to take much longer than its size might suggest. Fortunately, Reisner and his team had the patience, the resources, and the care to do this job properly. So, from January to December of 1926, they carefully cleared and studied the monument. What did they find? When Alan Rowe first opened the chamber, he saw a stone sarcophagus, a pile of broken furniture covered with gold, and bits of assorted pottery. In one sense, the tomb was kind of a mess. But once they began properly studying and clearing it, the archaeologists were quickly able to reconstruct the original furniture that had laid within it. The sarcophagus, made of stone, was the primary item. But around it, the ancients had placed a couple of chairs or thrones, a wooden sedan or carrying chair, a bed with its headrest, boxes of toiletries and vessels, jewellery, and a large assortment of pottery. There was also a strange set of objects, long rods made of wood and covered with gold. They seemed to fit together somehow, but the ancients had disassembled these rods and stacked them together atop the sarcophagus. It wasn't clear what this was, but it was an intriguing find. Reisner and his team could also identify boxes, which seemed to contain ancient artefacts. These included a set of jewellery bracelets made of silver, and various toiletries and stone vessels that may have been placed in the tomb for the deceased's use in the afterlife. There was even a set of copper razors that the person might use to maintain bodily hygiene in their immortal life. Basically, the chamber, although in a terribly decayed and haphazard state, seemed to include many of the items you would expect in a classic wealthy burial. So judging by the assemblage itself, the tomb clearly belonged to somebody important. That was also reinforced by the location of this tomb. The chamber and shaft were located very close to the Great Pyramid of Khufu, and since the objects found within this tomb conformed to a 4th dynasty date, that suggested that whoever lay within this chamber, they had been buried here with the approval of the king himself. After all, Khufu probably wouldn't let just anyone build their tomb in his sacred necropolis. So, who was the owner of this tomb? The answer was quite intriguing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Throughout 1926, the archaeological team carefully removed the fragments of furniture and small objects that lay within the chamber. As they did so, and as they began the laborious process of restoration, they were gradually able to identify the owner of the tomb itself. Apparently, 
the chamber belonged to a woman named Chetep Cheres. Chetep Cheres was a member of the royal family in the early 4th dynasty, around the time of King Khufu and his father, King Seneferu. Roughly speaking, she probably lived around 2630 BCE, up to maybe 2580. We can't say for sure, more on that later, but that's a likely period for her life. Hetheperis's origins are unknown. Her name means something like, her face is pleasing, or her face satisfies. If that is her birth name, then apparently her baby face was extremely pleasing to her parents. If it's a name she took on later, then it might reflect her position and splendour within the court. However you look at it, Cheteperis is a classic name of the Old Kingdom royal family, partly reflecting the attitudes of the time, but also the influence and prominence of the lady herself. Beyond the name, her origins in a family and political sense are uncertain at best. Clearly, she came from the extended royal family at the very least, but none of her titles explicitly named her parents. There was one reference that called Heteperes the God's daughter of his body, the Sat Necher en Hetef. That's an unusual title, the significance is a little bit unclear. It definitely refers to a king of some sort, nobody but the king or a god is going to be called the Necher. But how it actually connects this lady with the king in question, that is unknown. Personally, I wonder if maybe a title like God's Daughter of His Body refers to a girl born after her royal father had died. The idea, as I imagine it, is that perhaps she was conceived while her royal father was still alive, but she wasn't born until some time after his death, that is, when he had become a god. That is pure speculation on my part, but it might be an explanation. An alternative could be that God's daughter of his body is connected with some kind of temple or religious ritual, a conception related to fertility and the great gods themselves. Again, it's an uncertain title, we're not entirely sure what it means, and there's a lot more research to be done. All we can say is that Hetep Heres had this title, so she is connected to a king in some way, we're just not sure how. Anyway, the origins of Hetepheris are murky at best, but as the archaeologists reconstructed the artefacts of the queen, they were able to identify certain things. For one thing, many of the objects belonging to Hetepheris associated her with the king Seneferu. Seneferu was the father of King Khufu, who commissioned the Great Pyramid. Seneferu, the maker of wonderful things, had commissioned three magnificent pyramids in his own time, episode 5, and his reign and court had been legendary for its wealth, power, and opulence. Apparently, Chetep Heres was a member of Seneferu's family. Along with that basic connection, other titles came to light on the artifacts of this lady. As I mentioned, she was called the God's Daughter of His Body, she was also described as, all things that she orders are done for her. This is quite a common epithet that basically communicates the prestige, influence, and power of the person in question. Basically, Hete Peres was a boss, 
anything she wanted, it was done. Geta Perez was also the controller of the butchers for the Acacia House. This is a common title for royal women, and it seems to connect them with the larger economic institution of the palace as an organization and group of people. Then, Geta Perez was the follower of Horus. Basically, she was a close associate of the king, a member of his entourage, and prominent within his court. Finally, the most significant title associated with Geta Peres was Mother of the King of Southern and Northern Egypt. This title, which in Egyptian is Mut Nesut Biti, is an important one. Apparently, Geta Peres was the mother of a pharaoh. But which king was she the mother of? That's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. The title Mut Nesut Biti, Mother of the King of Southern and Northern Egypt, does not make any reference to the actual king himself. So there's a couple of candidates. Because the artifacts of Hetep Heres associate her very closely with Seneferu, we might wonder if she was the mother of that particular king. That is unlikely, because according to the archaeological and historical information, the mother of King Seneferu is most likely a woman named Meres Ankh. So while her artifacts connect her with Seneferu, Heteperes is probably not that king's mother. With that in mind, it seems quite likely that Heteperes was actually the mother of Khufu. Although we cannot prove this definitively, the location of her tomb, just east of Khufu's pyramid, and the title Mother of the King of Southern and Northern Egypt, makes it quite likely that this is the mother of that king. If that is accurate, then Heteperes was a prominent and influential member of the royal family at the time of the greatest activity in pyramid building. During her lifetime, the Egyptian people had constructed the three magnificent pyramids of King Seneferu, and they began work on the enormous Great Pyramid itself. Put that together, and Hetep Heres must have witnessed incredible feats of engineering, economic and social organization, and sheer determination on the part of the Egyptian people. If we had access to a time machine, she would definitely be an interesting person to meet. Anyway, the artifacts contained within the tomb made it clear. This chamber, this monument, belonged to the Queen of Egypt, the mother of the king, Hetep Heres, she whose face is pleasing. Although the origins of Hetep Heres are unknown, and her exact relationship with Khufu is technically unproven, it does seem quite likely that she was his mother. At some point during his reign, Khufu had to arrange the burial of his female parent, and he decided to lay her to rest in a tomb near his own. Hetep Heres lived around 2600 BCE. Back in 1925, the archaeologists led by George Reisner were hard at work on the excavation, conservation, and restoration of Hetep Heres' tomb. At this point, the story takes an interesting turn, both from an archaeological and a modern perspective. The clearance of this chamber was an enormous undertaking, one of the most difficult tomb clearances in Egyptological history. So the excavators had their work cut out for them. 
they would carefully remove the thousands of fragments of metal, wood, stone, and pottery from the chamber. They would take these fragments, some of which were tiny, to laboratories on the Giza Plateau for conservation, and hopefully they would be able to identify and perhaps reconstruct the ancient items. In this sense, Reisner's excavation was fortunate that it occurred in 1925, and not ten years earlier. The discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922 had shown the world just how splendid the ancient treasures could be. More importantly, they had shown the public and investors how valuable it was to excavate carefully, to remove items slowly, with the utmost protection, and a focus on conservation. Compared to earlier generations, Reisner and his team could more readily convince their backers that care and conservation would pay good dividends. That being said, there was a political issue lurking in the background. It had to do with excavations and the possession of artifacts found within them. Again, this question had arisen strongly during the discovery of King Tutankhamun. When Howard Carter and his wealthy backer, Lord Carnarvon, had uncovered that tomb, there had been some expectation on their part that the treasures and objects might be divided between the archaeologists and the Egyptian government. Ideally, for the foreigners, some objects would become Lord Carnarvon's personal property, to display or dispense as he wished. In the event, though, the Egyptian government and antiquities service stepped forward to ensure, in no uncertain terms, that division would not happen. A find like Tutankhamun, of such magnificence and scale, must not in any way leave Egypt. That decision and dispute had caused all kinds of disturbances among the foreigners, including archaeologists, scholars, and politicians. But the issue was too prominent. The discovery of a royal tomb, intact and undisturbed, brought the question of artifacts and ownership into the spotlight. This affected the Hetep Heres excavation. Although George Reisner and his team were operating on behalf of two foreign institutions, Harvard University and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, there would be no division of finds. By the rules of 1925, the chamber of Hetep Heres counted as an intact royal burial. Thus, every item was required to stay in Egypt. It came under the authority of the Antiquities Service, and they were responsible for it. That could have been a major issue, but it wasn't. In this context, we should commend the Reisner excavation and the Egyptian government for reaching a remarkably innovative compromise. The treasures of Hetep Heres would remain in Egypt. But, as part of the excavation process, Reisner's team were permitted to do something ingenious. As they reconstructed and restored the treasures, they would also make replicas. Exact copies of the items would be prepared during the conservation process. Those replicas would go to Harvard University and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts to display or dispense as they wished. The result was kind of a best of both worlds. The treasures of Hetep Heres remained in the Nile Valley, her original home, 
but the replicas, made with exact reference to the original pieces, those could travel overseas, to educate and delight the public, especially those without the means to travel. It was a clever solution, and as a result, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts today possesses a complete set of treasures connected with Hetep Heres. They are exact one-to-one replicas of the original finds, and they reveal the wealth of this ancient queen. The replicas were made by three men, Ahmed Yusuf Mustafa, William Arnold Stewart, and Joseph Goethe. And thanks to the extensive documentation of this excavation, you can see photos of them working on the replicas in connection with the ancient pieces. You can see the fragments of Hetepere's furniture laid out carefully on soft wooden beds, and you can see the objects as they are slowly reconstructed. All of these photos are available on the website Digital Giza, which is run by Harvard University. I'll put a link in the episode description if you wish to see them. Anyway, for 12 full months, the archaeologists carefully cleared the tomb chamber. They conserved and restored the tiny fragments until they were able to reconstruct the elaborate furnishings and objects. Once they had cleared the chamber, there was only one item left, the large alabaster or travertine sarcophagus. The sarcophagus rested along the eastern side of the hall. It had a beautiful yellowish tinge, with deep bands running through the stone. The sarcophagus was simple, no particular adornments or decorations, but it was finely crafted and beautifully made, the sort of casket you might expect for a queen. During the 12 months of clearance and conservation, the team did not touch the sarcophagus. They did not try to open it, and they did not try to examine its contents. As a result, it wasn't until 1927 that Reisner and his associates finally looked within. On March the 3rd, a small crowd gathered within the tomb. This included Reisner and his assistants, like Alan Rowe and Greenlees. It also included the leaders of the Egyptian workers. They are not named specifically in the report of the opening, but they probably included Mahmoud Ahmed Said, who was the foreman or overseer of the Egyptian workers at the time. The assembly also included some government bigwigs, whom Reisner had invited for this special occasion. The small group gathered around the sarcophagus. The workers carefully inserted tools between the lid and the base, in order to prise it free from the container and slowly lift it off. They did this work, and as they removed the lid, the team excitedly gathered to peer within the casket. What they saw was… nothing. The sarcophagus was empty. It was entirely devoid of any objects, or even scraps of material, that might indicate the presence of a body. As you can imagine, this was crushingly disappointing, and in the report, the team is described as withdrawing silently from the tomb, as if almost embarrassed by the disappointment of the day. The presence of an empty sarcophagus immediately raised serious questions. The rest of the tomb contained all the furnishings you might expect from a proper wealthy burial. And yet, when it came to the body itself, there was nothing there. This was a confusing question, and I'll come back to it in just a moment. Following the disappointment of opening the sarcophagus, Reisner arranged its removal. On April 18th, a team of workers constructed a tripod above the shaft of Hetep Heres' tomb. 
Then, using wooden rollers and ropes, they carefully dragged the sarcophagus out of its chamber and then lifted it up the shaft. In a sense, the Egyptian workers now reversed the work that their ancestors had done some 4,000 years earlier. The sarcophagus was taken to the old museum in Cairo, near Tahrir Square. Today, it has been moved to the Grand Egyptian Museum, where it will undergo conservation and then be placed on display with the rest of Hetep Heres treasures. Surprisingly, the removal of this sarcophagus was not the final point in the excavation. During their excavations, archaeologists had identified a section of the wall, on the western side of the chamber, that seemed to be an alcove or niche. This was an area that the ancient builders had cut into the rock, and then blocked with a collection of stones and plaster. Alcoves or niches are extremely common in Egyptian tombs, and they tend to contain smaller chambers or goods used for the burial. On May 21st, 1927, Reisner and his team removed the blocking of this alcove. What they found was even more curious. Within the alcove, there was a small alabaster box. It was square-shaped and divided into four compartments. This box was the canopic chest, a chest designed to hold the organs or viscera of the deceased person. The canopic chest itself was made of the same stone and had the same design and craftsmanship of the great sarcophagus. They were clearly made together as furnishings for this tomb. And yet, while the sarcophagus was empty, the canopic chest was still in the chamber. This was even more unusual. On May 23, 1927, the archaeologists removed the canopic chest, following its study, recording, and conservation. At this point, the tomb of Heteperes was closed and sealed for good. To the best of my knowledge, it has never been reopened or re-examined. At this point, the story of the excavation came to its end. But there were many questions left unanswered. Why had this chamber been constructed just east of the Great Pyramid? Why had it been filled with all kinds of funerary items, including a complete suite of furniture and high-quality objects for the Queen Chetep Heres? And most importantly, why was all of this here when there was no body within the casket? At this point, our story turns from a straightforward tale of archaeology and excavation to a proper case of detective work and crime scene investigation. It's a crime with no body, but that in itself is part of the mystery. So, what is the deal with the chamber of Chetep Heres? Why is it here? And where is her body? Ever wondered what it's like to be in the room with top Al-Qaeda terrorists plotting their next move? Do you want to know how the history of Islamic fundamentalist thought informs the way the world works today? Well then, dear listener, Conflicted is the podcast for you. I trace the epic battles between Muslims and the West. What are the Houthis' objectives in the Red Sea? It's a lesson to the rest of the Muslim world and the Arab world. Do not trust the Islamists. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, an author and filmmaker, and my good friend Eamon Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted tells stories of the Islamic past and present 
to help you make sense of the world today. And now Conflicted Season 5 is being cooked up, coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community to give you bonus episodes and access to our community hub on Discord. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts. In 1955, George Reisner's full archaeological report of the tomb was finally published. Reisner himself had died in the 1930s, but thanks to his extensive and meticulous record-keeping, and the full suite of photographs and notes related to the tomb's excavation, Reisner's colleagues were able to compile his notes and what he had written and put it together for publication. Much of what I'm about to tell you comes from Reisner's book and the work of later Egyptologists. If you are interested in this material, most of it is available online for free download. Just follow the links in the episode description to see the bibliography. To begin with, we should establish the facts of the Hetep Heres chamber. Firstly, the chamber itself is unusual. It is dug into the ground of the Giza necropolis, but it entirely lacks a superstructure like a mastaba or a pyramid. The chamber itself was fully stocked with items suitable for a tomb burial. It had a sarcophagus, a canopic chest, furniture, pottery, personal adornments, and items for Hetepere's convenience. And yet, all of these objects were basically pointless because there was no body. From the outset, it seemed quite likely that the burial of Hetepere's had been disturbed in some way. Tomb robbery is extremely common in Egyptian archaeology, and it has been going on for thousands of years. But the presence of all the other objects, including such an abundance of gold, was a very curious situation. If the tomb had been robbed, why would thieves leave all that precious golden metal? More importantly, the archaeological context itself suggested that the Hetep Heres chamber had been closed and sealed in the reign of Khufu, and it had not been disturbed since then. So, if there had been a robbery of Queen Hetepere's tomb, it must have happened before that final closure. That is an interesting point that we'll come back to in a moment. The overall challenge is that nothing in the surviving archaeological remains points conclusively at a single explanation. Studying the problem, George Reisner suggested a possible solution. In his view, the Queen Hetepheres might originally have been buried in a tomb at Dashur or Meidum. These were the cemeteries commissioned by her husband, King Seneferu. And traditionally speaking, an Egyptian queen would be buried close or in association with her royal husband. Hypothetically, Queen Hetepheres had been laid to rest in a tomb somewhere near to Seneferu himself. But following that, Reisner suggested that Hetepere's original tomb had been robbed. In the course of this robbery, the queen's body had been removed from its sarcophagus, rifled for jewellery and amulets, and then, somehow, destroyed. In this scenario, royal officials had discovered the violation of the tomb, and they had conspired, with or without King Khufu's knowledge, to arrange the reburial of Queen Hetepere's items. In this scenario, the body of Queen Hetepheres was entirely lost, and the royal officials somehow concealed that from Khufu, 
and laid the queen's items to rest at the tomb in Giza. This was done quickly and quietly, resulting in a haphazard and kind of rough construction. But once they got everything into the tomb, they sealed it, filled the shaft, and concealed it. There it lay for 4,000 years. Reisner's explanation was ambitious. It had a lot of hypotheticals, and the big problem is that there's not much proof that any of this actually happened. It is certainly conceivable, it's just how would you prove that elaborate series of events without more information? This issue was apparent early on, and subsequently, multiple Egyptologists have re-examined the tomb and situation of Peres to try to understand more fully what had happened. The most important discussion was by Mark Lehner in 1985. As part of his PhD study on the Giza necropolis, Lehner re-examined the evidence surrounding the burial of Peres. His hypothesis, summarized briefly, went as follows. In Lena's idea, Queen Hetaperes was always buried at Giza, not Dashur or Meidum. She was probably buried early in the reign of Khufu, when construction work had only just begun on the Great Pyramid Complex. The location of her tomb, not far from his actual pyramid, was done quickly, at a time when the overall layout of this complex was still being finalised and confirmed. Subsequently, changes to the Great Pyramid, and the addition of new pyramids and mastabas alongside it, demanded that royal officials re-enter the tomb. They removed the queen's body, and took it to a new burial site. Again, this hypothesis is entirely plausible, but it still has large gaps that we can't exactly prove. But that is Lena's idea, Perhaps Heteperus was always buried at Giza, and as the Great Pyramid construction project evolved, subsequently her body was removed and buried somewhere else. The third idea comes from Zahi Hawass. Hawass proposes a slightly different timeline compared to Leno or Reisner. For Hawass, the disturbance and reburial of Heteperus might actually date to a later era, specifically the First Intermediate Period when the Old Kingdom royal house had gradually lost power and influence, and the kingdom, quote-unquote, kind of collapsed into disunity. That era, the First Intermediate Period, might have seen some looting and damage in various royal cemeteries. More on those in the future. For Hawass, it is possible that the damage and reburial of Hetepere's tomb actually dates to the First Intermediate Period, Again, this is possible. There is archaeological evidence that Giza itself was damaged and partially ransacked during that time. But the big issue here is that all of the evidence from the tomb itself dates to the 4th dynasty. There are no artifacts or materials dated to any later period, so it seems very unlikely that the monument was disturbed at that time. Finally, a scholar named Hans Hubertus Munch suggests that actually, the chamber of Heteperes is not a tomb or burial at all. Munch suggests that rather this chamber is a deposit, a cache of items connected with the queen, but not actually intended as a burial. That one, I think, is the least convincing, simply because all of the artifacts within the chamber point to a tomb and a burial. Even if that burial is missing a body, everything else within the monument points to that situation. 
I'll come back to this in the extended version of this episode to explore it more fully. So we have a few plausible scenarios. Maybe Geta Perez was buried somewhere else in a different necropolis. Her tomb was robbed, and her body was destroyed. All of her items were then moved to her new burial site at the Giza Plateau. When this happened, and how, are still entirely unknown. But somehow, the original burial was disturbed, the queen's mummy was lost, and what remained was placed in a new burial site. On the evidence currently available, that is the best we can propose. I do wonder if there is another explanation. Perhaps when Geta Perez died, she died in circumstances that actually caused the loss or destruction of her body. Perhaps the queen drowned or was killed in an animal attack, and her possessions, her funerary items, were placed in the chamber as a kind of symbolic burial, a way to ensure her immortality, even if her body had been lost. That is pure speculation on my part, and I'll get into it a bit more in the extended episode, but I do wonder if that might be a potential explanation. Bringing it all together, the tomb of Heteperis is a genuine archaeological mystery. A crime scene with no specific evidence for a crime, and yet such an unusual situation of artifacts and furnishings that we can't help but wonder if something went terribly, terribly wrong. Whatever happened exactly, this monument just east of the Great Pyramid is one of the more intriguing in the Giza Plateau, compared to her contemporaries who enjoyed magnificent pyramids and decorated mastaba tombs, the Queen Hetep Heres, likely the mother of Khufu himself, went to her rest in a small, undecorated chamber beneath the Giza Plateau. Her tomb contained an abundance of high-quality, expensive objects, including items she could use in daily life and in eternity. And yet, for all that wealth and care in the preparation of this tomb, one thing was missing. The queen herself is gone, we do not know where her body lies, and we don't even know if it survives. In 2023, the chamber of Geteperes remains as mysterious as it did in 1925. Perhaps future excavations will give us more answers, or future scholarship in the archives and records of Reisner's excavation may furnish some explanations. For now, the best we can say is that for all her wealth, for all her splendor, Geta Perez's afterlife is a question mark at best. Hopefully, her soul made its way to the western horizon, to the kingdom of the great gods, and while her body might be missing, hopefully she lies in peace somewhere. Today, the treasures of Heteperis are beautifully preserved, both in the Cairo Museum and in exact replicas in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Whether you are in Egypt or Boston, they are well worth a visit and they provide a beautiful picture of the wealth and comforts of an ancient Egyptian queen. For now, this is all we can say about the life, death, and afterlife of Queen Khetep Heres, she whose face is pleasing, a mother of great pyramids. And now, a brief epilogue. Among the many objects discovered within the tomb of Hetep Heres, there was a box containing jewellery. 
These had decayed and crumbled over the centuries, but the archaeologists were able to restore and reconstruct them. The jewellery within this box took the form of bracelets. A set of armbands, maybe ankle bands or wristbands, that belonged to Queen Hedeperes. The bracelets followed a similar pattern. They were made of silver, with inlays of faience, turquoise, and precious stones. They were decorated with insects and sun discs, more on that later. And they were clearly items of high value and prestige. The bracelets were made of silver, but Egypt is naturally poor in silver. The country has an abundance of gold and copper in the eastern and southern deserts, but silver usually had to be imported from overseas lands. In this sense, an interesting development occurred in 2023. Scientists from Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, gained permission to re-examine the bracelets of Queen Hetaperis. Studying tiny fragments of the metal, they were able to identify the mineral components and profile of the silver itself. Most notably, Isotopic analysis of the silver suggested that it was originally mined in a land far away from Egypt. The silver in these bracelets most closely matched silver that comes from the Cyclades, that is the region of the Aegean Islands near modern-day Greece. Apparently, Hetaperes had a set of bracelets made of silver that had been imported either directly or through long-range trade networks from the lands across the Mediterranean. This discovery was fascinating. It adds further evidence to historians' understanding of ancient trade routes and the international connections between Egypt, the Near East, and the Mediterranean. From the Late Bronze Age, the Middle and New Kingdoms, we know a lot about these trade networks. But for the Old Kingdom and earlier periods, archaeologists are still gathering evidence and piecing them together. The discovery that the silver of Hetaperes bracelets originated in the Aegean area? That was a remarkable find. This study is available on open access online. If you would like to read it, you can find a reference in the episode description. One final point. The bracelets of Hetaperes are decorated with a similar motif. They are all adorned with moths, or maybe butterflies, and in between they have orange circles, These orange circles probably represent sun disks, the symbol of the god Ra. Which, I have to wonder, if you take a moth and Ra, what do you get? Well, apparently, Hetaperes was an early fan of the kaiju Mothra. All hail our insect queen. This brings us to the end of the story of Queen Hetaperes. If you would like to hear the extended version, that is available on patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. If you would like to see the treasures of Hetaperes themselves, you can find them online. I will include links in the episode description to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and websites where you can see these treasures for yourself. Additionally, I highly recommend the website Digital Giza. This website is run by Harvard University, and they have compiled all of the archaeological records, including notes, photographs, maps and diagrams, and all kinds of information about excavations and archaeological work at the Giza Plateau. The archive stretches back more than a hundred years, and if you are interested in the monuments of this sacred necropolis, 
the website Digital Giza should be your first stop. Once again, I will put the links in the episode description if you would like to learn more. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. In particular, I want to extend special thanks to the priests, my top-tier backers on Patreon.com. The priests are responsible for maintaining the cult of the great gods, and they oversee the burials, like the burial of Queen Heteperes. It is thanks to their devotion, and their extreme generosity, that I am able to put as much time and effort as I do into the podcast and its research. I would like to thank Linda, Terry, TJ, Yola, Mykost, Andy and Chelsea, Evan, Kyla, Neden, Ashley, and Veronica. These fine folks formed the priesthood in December of 2023. Folks, you are all too kind, and I am forever in your debt. Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast.